Hello, folks. This is South Cox with Stalker Stickbows. Got Aaron and Frank yoked out Frank here. <laughs> <laughs> Play Rocky in the background. Indeed. Well, well you guys got an announcement. Uh, there's been a hostile takeover. Stalker Stickbows has bought out Kafaro Cast starting Monday. <laughs> Actually, not Kafaro Cast, but Kafaro International. Starting Monday, uh, no more packs. We're going into business with Rogan building fanny packs. It's a good idea. <laughs> All Frank and I were thinking about is about hunting season, and uh, we're going to retire. So we were like, "Yeah, sell this shit. Let's get out of here." There you go. Good, get a, good get timing. Forerunner and yeah, <laughs> bunch of protein, bro. Oh lord, the uh, the fanny pack, man. We did get a lot of comments about the fanny pack thing. Luke brought that up. Uh, I guess there's still a lot of people who wear a fanny pack. Yeah, I I thought I'd come up with that one all my own. So I guess I'm slow to. Uh, Luke brought it up on a, we needed to build one, a fanny pack. He likes them, Luke Cadillo. And then, uh-huh. uh, a lot of parents, I think that's what his thing was for carrying his daughter's stuff, whatever he takes with his daughter. <laughs> Diaper <laughs> bag. Yeah. Basically, but a fanny pack version. <laughs> oh, she's out of diapers now. So all right, snacks and yeah, whatever else. Oh Lord. Well, so until kids are about six or seven, you always need diaper wipes because they're making messes everywhere they go. Yeah, and even if it's yeah, not in their pants, it's everywhere yep. else. I uh of course you'd think we'd be talking about mule deer right off the bat, but kids, since you got a whole alpha team, how many kids you got at the house now? Uh well there's I've got six kids. Um I've got uh two stepsons that are, you know, both in their mid to getting to be later 20s and and then my biological son's halfway through college he's 20 now and then we've got three adopted ones there's six of us all told well, six of the kids all told and right now the three little ones are still at home and then my bio son's here for the summer helping build bows while he's on college break and making some money gotcha so you you've you've done a lot of the parenting thing i've only done it once um it is uh trying to think of highlights so we had a changing table uh-huh. and uh, when you're green at it you know you don't really realize how much a kid can move so we had that stupid this diaper thing and then you squ- you, you twist it and then the, the it ends up looking like a centipede of shit ba- shit piles right yeah. it's all your anyway so I reached over to drop the diaper in and I came back and my daughter was gone right <laughs> she <laughs> <laughs> Likely, I didn't go to manslaughter. She, little shit knocker flipped backwards into the dirty clothes hamper. So I looked down, and it's just her little feet uh, sticking up. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus. You know, oh, Lord. Yeah, boy. And then uh, when you potty train, is, uh, they're shitting in the toy box and in the front yard mm-hmm. and in the flower bed. Did you experience any of that? Uh, yeah. Everything yeah. looks like a bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Frank, look what you got forward. Look, look nah, I'm going to start with a dog, maybe. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, so what do you got coming up? You're hunting here pretty quick, aren't you? Yeah, next week. So what is this, like the 8th of August right now, I think. And and uh, I've got a Nevada elk tag cashed in 18 points on. And so that starts on the 16th. So I'll probably leave on the 14th and uh, you know, uh, hopefully get in evening of the, the 14th and then, and maybe make a little bit of a dent in the hike in and, and then start doing some glassing. And so it's a, it's an early hunt. It'll be more like a spot and stock mule deer hunt than a traditional, you know, elk hunt with calls and what have you. What, um, are you bringing just you and Jake going down there? Or are you bringing a crew? Yeah, just me and Jake. Yeah. Yep. So we've got Jake and I, two llamas, and then, uh, another friend, um, is going to join us, uh, like around the 18th, I think. 
something like that. Gotcha. What do you got uh, planned out for that as far as timeline before you got to come back? Uh, well, it runs to the 31st, and you know, tentatively we're looking at say the 25th ish. But um, if if I'm not tagged out by then, then I I may call in some extra days with the wife and <laughs> and run the season to the end. The problem is is that. Colorado opens, you know, on the 31st. So ideally, I'd like to get home for a couple of days to be able to do laundry, regroup, repack, and then leave for, uh, you know, for elk and deer for Colorado. So I'm hoping that I can get it done in, you know, 10 days or so. You've run into some decent elk in your your one area in Colorado for where you hunt yeah, mule well, deer. Have you closed the deal on that? or, or uh... No, I've never taken an elk out of that unit. Um, and it's mostly for lack of trying. Um, I don't get, I don't spend too much time chasing around, but I have, you know, each, almost each year I've, you know, made a somewhat of an effort to get after one or two and, and I've had some decent close encounters, but I've yeah. never. Don't you just feel like when you're like way up high like that and you look down and you see a herd of elk and a nice bull and you're like, oh, man, I don't really want to go down there. <laughs> Especially for an elk. <laughs> Looks like a lot of work. Yeah, yeah we, we had some good ones last year, and I'm like, uh, I'm going to fill this deer tag first, I think. Yeah, some of the areas where they're in is, um, I don't think people probably realize what they've got in store for them. Like, it's it's uh, it's a bit much, which, you know what, while we're talking about the bit much, um, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but... Um, we get a lot of people, um, every year that give us their, uh, you know, they've been, they've been training and they're, you know, they're, yeah. they're the normal thing. Um, and then they may have a little bit unrealistic expectations and they'll backpack in, they get kicked in the ding ding real hard and then they'll end their hunt early cause they kind of crapped out. And the one thing I'd say is, um, I know the, the backpack hunting thing is, is the cool thing nowadays, but it's may not necessarily be the most conducive for success to a lot of people. There's no shame in, in um, you know, hunting in and out from the road, especially if it's going to save you, you know, physically. And I don't know how much you talk with guys about that or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think realistic expectations are, I mean, you know, going in 10 miles or double digit miles or, you know, approaching that. 60, just to get away. 60 yeah. vertical miles? Yeah, 60 verticals. <laughs> <laughs> That's laughable. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think I think guys can get themselves in over their heads quite a bit, particularly when you're first starting out. Um, just, I mean, there's so many factors. Yeah, you know, hiking 10 miles is one thing, but then there's the overall, you know, kind of experience of being in there and um, – you know, just psychologically kind of getting over, uh, you know, a tough hunt or maybe you're not seeing a lot of animals in the beginning there. And I've seen a lot of guys roll it up just because, I mean, one, you're you're physically really fatigued when you get in there. So that starts to play on you mentally. And then, you know, if you're not finding animals or you're bumping into other hunters and, and uh, it's just not playing out, it gets really easy to talk yourself off the mountain. And I think guys would benefit you know, if you're, say, if you're a once every three year mule deer hunter or, or every other year or something like that, or you're, you know, kind of tackling this as a new, new hunting, um, new hunt experience, new species. Um, if you're looking at going in 10 miles and, uh, and that's a new experience for you as well, that's a lot of stuff to overcome 
uh, in, you know, in your first hunt. And I, I think that you're kind of stacking the deck against yourself right out, you know, right from the beginning there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, oh, I say, well, I'll just say me in the last six years of backpacking just off a of memory, I would have to say I found more guys hiking out early, probably by a multiplier of four than I found guys that actually stayed because <laughs> uh, whether it be weather, like this year seems to be going to be a bad weather year. That's going to be, you know, some pretty epic lightning storms. It's, they're there every year, but it seems like it might be worse this year. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, you, you kind of get to see the glory of backpack hunting and social media, but you don't see the lungs burning and the hunger or potential hunger and the loss of sleep and the weather. Discomfort. <clears throat> yeah, a lot mm -hmm. of discomfort involved. Um, I know. Eh, what's the, what do you think is the most ass-whooping hunt you've been on backpack hunt-wise? Boy, um, man, I've been on some doozies. <laughs> 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 I think probably the worst one, and it wasn't even – you know that bad is just in in moments that you know it got to be pretty bad but having shot an elk and i was about 10 miles back in this was i don't know 15 years ago or something and uh i had a buddy it was off the edge of a cliff and and uh fortunately i mean this wasn't even an entirely a backpack hunt he he came in with horses to help me pack it out but i had the great idea of you know, I was on the bottom side of the cliff, and he was able to ride his horse up to the top side, and I figured he could just tie the uh, meat bags to the saddle horn and then, you know, tie the rope off and then just have his horse walk up the hill and pull these meat bags up this dry waterfall. Well, I didn't realize it, but from the bottom um, where I could see the top of the waterfall, it was a super steep angle coming down to the top of the waterfall that I couldn't see. He ended up having to um, rope himself, tie himself to a tree so he didn't fall off, and then hand over hand rope, you know, each of these meat bags up this dry waterfall. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was it was pretty nutty, but that was a you know pretty good one. And of course, the bull didn't die right there at the bottom of the waterfall; it died way down the the hill. And I had a super steep pack out to get the elk up to the point where he could haul it up, but. Um, you know, then there's a, there's just been a, a, a myriad of other, you know, when I used to do a lot more bivouac hunting, that's taxing physically, um, versus hunting out of a base camp where you're just carrying your, you know, your camp with you on your back and wherever you land. I mean, extremely effective as far as, you know, covering ground, having fresh animals to get into. And, and uh, I used to do a lot more of that and actually really enjoyed it. But, um, uh, since I started using llamas, it's not as really, you know, conducive for that. Yeah, I've, people ask me about the the bivy hunting thing, and generally I just say, hey, if if I'm having to hunt with everything that's on my back, something's gone terribly wrong. Usually, I I'm hunting to an area, I hunt a day or two, hunt to the next area, mm -hmm. and I'm that's and and it still sucks, but I've never had great luck hunting with forty pounds of shit on my back or forty five. Now looking for new, I guess it's semantics to a certain degree. There's a big difference between trying to call in elk with 45 pounds of crap and, and you know, setting up and, 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 you know, maneuvering and everything else to just repositioning to find new areas and then setting up a camp and hunting. And I think, I don't know about you, but I have not had the greatest of luck being mobile with 45 pounds of stuff. I'll find great areas and where I want to set up and hunt, but I generally try to drop the crap off of me when I start hunting. And I think guys... 
and I may could be totally wrong. You you could do it totally different. Um, they think they're actually going to be hunting all day, every day with 40 to 50 pounds of shit on their back. And it's, it's just not very much fun. You can do it. And I don't know if you tried to always set up your camp, you know, move with all that stuff on and find a good spot and maybe position yourself as you're hunting into an area. I mean, how, how are you doing that? So what I would do when I was hunting Nevada is I would backpack or horse pack you know, get uh, dropped off or do the llamas. Well, it's actually, I never did this once I start packing with the llamas because then you have stock and camp that need to be looked after. But I'd either backpack in or I'd get packed in and and dropped off and I would have a gear cache where it was mainly a food stash. So I would load, you know, for an eight-day hunt, I would take half my food with me and then I... Um, I would, you know, take my whole camp and I'd usually leave an extra tent back there um, where I'd store my food and maybe some extra gear, change of clothes or whatever. And then um, I would take off and this, it actually worked pretty effective, effectively for me in Nevada. I would um, leave from my base camp with four days of food and then I would just kind of bounce. And uh, I, it's not so much when at least, you know, elk hunting, you're, you're walking a lot you know, all day long trying to get into elk, trying to find elk. And, and uh, so it's going to be a lot more physically taxing. Whereas mule deer hunting, I'm spending a ton of time glassing. So it's really just moving from one vantage point to another for, um, for you know, finding a good perspective. So I really might only, you know, from where I camped one, you know, one night to where I'm going the next night, I might only cover a quarter or half a mile, or it might be three or four miles relocating to another spot. But then I'm just moving, you know, in smaller increments, just get new perspective on, uh, you know, on a canyon. And I think this is something that's really, how can I say this, uh, really under, um, under maybe utilized is or underappreciated is that, you know, if you're glassing in a basin and there's even a, a, small or decent amount of cover is keep moving to get different perspectives. I remember one basin in particular I hunted in Nevada and it wasn't, you know, maybe a quarter mile across and there was, uh, there's a decent amount of trees in there, um, kind of a high alpine basin, but it wasn't, I mean, wasn't heavily treed, but there was enough that I knew, you know, behind a rock or behind a tree could be a bedded buck. And I remember moving seven times and I might move 50 yards, I might move 100 yards, might move 25 yards, but just would move, sit down, glass everything, then pick up, move. You know, I might glass for an hour or it might be 15 minutes. Um, but it was like my seventh time that I moved that I end up picking up a, a buck that I couldn't see from any other angle. Yeah, you definitely have to, yeah, that and sheep is the same one, same kind of kind of way. I think a bighorn sheep's probably the hardest damn thing to find. They look yeah. just like rocks. But the, I don't think people realize, uh, especially once you get down into a basin, a lot of shit for those deer to hide behind. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. don't think they realize it. Yep, no doubt. And then, I mean, you know, they may be bedded in a tree or behind a tree or, you know, if their antlers obscured by a bush or something, and it can get pretty tough to pick tines out. You know, when you get some dead branches, everyone's thought, oh, man, there's one year your heart rate goes up. And it's like, oh, no, it's just a fork and a branch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry we had an interruption. We had somebody coming off there. But, yeah, as far as picking out those animals and shifting around, I don't think people do realize how 
many hidey holes there is and in certain areas and the the thing is is like you said 50 yards doesn't seem like that much a deer moves 50 yeah. lose them totally so if you move 50 you're gonna pick them up totally i mean it only makes sense did you guys read that uh the eastman's eastman's first book the high country mule deer thing how mm-hmm. to no you didn't um that's what he said in, in his book like when i first started thinking about hunting high country mule deer is just moving around the basin and getting yeah. your different perspectives like south was saying I think that's super helpful. Yeah, and yeah. we we do that. I don't know about Frank's over there in La La Land. I don't get to hang out with him much, but you almost you know no matter where you go, it's pretty amazing. Um, elk hunting before I started mule deer hunting more. So I remember like 15, 16 years ago, um, trying to pack an elk out and uh, looked over this edge to figure out a you know a way down, and <laughs> there's like seven mule deer <laughs> below us, in the, which you couldn't have seen anywhere unless you yeah. came over that section, and then. Obviously, you throw those things in your, you know, little Rolodex of shit to remember. And the the one thing I hardly ever, I never do now is creep up on that. I mean, I always now, anytime I'm in cliffy terrain, is like so how so many beds you see when you're looking. You're, you could very easily be a deer in there. So it's amazing just going to glass over and you forget to look 30 yards below you and there's yep. deer bedded. Oh, man. Um, you know, how, like, how many can be hanging there? One of the things I've found in Nevada when I'm hunting um, is uh, a lot of guys just run those main ridges and they don't get off on the finger ridges mm-hmm. and then glass off those finger ridges. And even walking out to the ends of the finger ridges and looking off, that hides a ton of, of animals and ton of critters. And deer will respond. I mean, guys, when they're running those main ridges, they're just going to push out onto those fingers and there's enough cover in there that, uh, you know, they can easily hide there. So it's important, you know, not just to run the main ridge, look into the basins on either side, but then actually walk out those fingers that separate those basins and then glassing, you know, on off of both sides, off of those fingers and off the end there as well. No, definitely. I, uh, I did a podcast with someone else not too long ago, and they asked me what I thought the number one reason for like success and one for failure of of high country uh mule deer and sheep hunting and i, I said patience was mm-hmm. one of the, like either not having enough or being two one, one or the other what do you think how, how important is i mean what do you think's the number one i mean obviously shit can on the fact they can't get to the top of the mountain but once they're up there where do you guys think guys screw up the most i'm sure you get asked that a lot I think it's not, you know, covering too much ground with your feet and not enough with your glass. And again, that goes back to moving and picking, you know, picking uh, different, um, you know, glassing repeatedly from different uh, locations. And, and uh, you know, a lot of guys will walk up to the edge of a base and sit down, glass it, and then move on to the next one. They might only glass from one perspective. And you're just leaving a lot of country there that um you, you you're just not looking at them I mean, you're seeing so if you glass from one perspective you might be seeing you know what looks like 100 percent of the basin but then you pick up and you move you know 50 or 100 yards and then you're seeing you know you might have only seen 60 percent of of the base and you're exposing a whole lot of um you know of, of uh, additional country and potential animals by doing that and if you if you you know move in a arc across the top of that basin and just repeatedly sit down in glass, it seems like it's being redundant, and to a degree it is. But uh, you know you you have an animal that's standing there feeding behind a tree, 
um, or bedded behind a tree or behind a boulder or something like that. And you're not going to see it from all perspectives. I, I tell you where you really notice that as crazy it is, is a moose. When a moose can disappear in a basin, you got a pretty good freaking idea. A deer can super disappear because like we, we've lost moose in the high country mm-hmm. pretty quickly in a basin. So you think you're losing a whatever, 2,000 pound animal. Right. <laughs> 250 pounders probably going to disappear pretty quick. Yeah. And those willows in the bottoms of those basins and the sides are deceptively tall. Um, you know, usually when a deer is standing up, you know, you can see it from above and then they lay down and you might be able to pick out some antler tines and then you plant a stalk and all of a sudden you get down there and you realize they're head high and, uh, that's something to keep in perspective, too. If they're in the willows, there's a good chance you're just going to have to wait till they get out of them in order to be able to get a shot. I've shot three or four that have run into willows last year being one of them, and that shit was well <laughs> over my head. Yeah. Like, you yeah. you like messaged jungle in there. me on the inReach, and uh, I knew you were, because it said ducked up. You said he looked all ducked up. Uh-huh. I lost him in the willows, and at that time I was in the willows, and I'm like, fuck. I mean, it was two feet over my head, and yeah. I'm like, well— we're going to have to reassess the situation here that I'm not going to, I'm going to come about this a different way. And there was actually creeks, uh, uh, like boulder, like, you know, rock yeah. creeks every, whatever that was, 50 yards coming down. And I'm like, well, he crossed one of these. I'm going to find blood in this before I wander around like an idiot in these willows. Cause you just can't, you get an elephant in there. Well, yeah. you hit that one buck. You talked about it on your video. What kind of shit show was that where you guys were gridding in those things? Oh, man, I tell you. <laughs> I mean, you look at the slow motion video, um, and it looks like, you know, a great shot. And I literally found one pin drop of blood on that buck, and uh, it disappeared into acres and acres of willows. <laughs> and with no blood trail, I mean, it's futile. There's just – Luck. Know, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, you literally – would have to step on them to be able to see them because, I mean, you're standing in there and you can't, you know, you're parting the willows with your hands and stuff. And, yeah, it's uh, – we never did see – we hunted that basin for, you know, another week and we never saw any animals, any birds or anything like that. So I don't know if that arrow ended up just coming forward of the vitals or, you know, there's – some of those situations are just total mysteries when they – yeah, you know, how they pan out. Well, they can live a long time, like forever, on one lung yep. too. I'm surprised we hit one in the bells, and and uh, I didn't hit it. My buddy did, and it, I thought for sure that there was that. <laughs> and, uh, I was, I was when I say for sure, there was a lot of lung blood coming out of his mouth. Uh-huh. Um, we saw that deer two years later. Is that um, right? I'm like going back to photos from when I'm like, uh huh. I'll be son of a bitch, <laughs> same deer. And uh, what was amazing is I bet that next year he had went downhill, and then the yeah. year after that he was right. about the same size as he was when we huh. first shot him. So pretty, pretty wild. You but, ever seen those videos or those pictures on uh, the internet of like elk and deer with like full length arrows in their bodies, and people end up killing them? They they're gutting them out, and they find like a like a section of arrow or like a broadhead in them or a whole arrow. I, I killed a bull with uh, two bullets and three broadheads in it. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah and and. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to misspeak. And if game, I know game wardens listen to this podcast. I believe there was a bull in two thousand nine ninety eight ninety nine two thousand time frame. They trapped here that was old to just run tests on it, and it had a heart attack. It had thirteen uh, bullets and broadheads in it. it. Had a fifty cal muzzleloader round wedged in its heart, and it, and it just had a heart attack. Bull was thirteen years old, I think, if I remember in the story correctly. Wow. 
don't think people realize how tough, tough they are. these are. Um, Man, that's like um, an unkillable animal. <laughs> they captured it. I'm trying to, you know, I mean, that shit happens when you're hunting. I mean, shit, you know, things get, you know, wounded and things happen. What's, um, like you talk about those, you know, mysteries. I've had pretty good luck where I haven't had too many mysteries where, you know, we ended up finding it. But yeah. I've had a couple guys, um, remember the old XX75s? Oh, yeah. Um, so they're an aluminum that can bend easier. The 78 uh, is a, a more snappable um, uh, aluminum, right? right? Harder, but more brittle. <laughs> I was in, um, man, where were, this was years ago with, with a buddy of mine, and um, we'd, we'd set, hunted apart all day, and I got on a bull, and anyway, I was calling it. Anyway, a fucking arrow launches over my head, and I hadn't seen my buddy all day. We just ended up happening on the same herd, and he didn't mean to launch one uh, over my head, but he fucking launched it over my head whack and he hits this bull and i see it take off and it and it it went in and came out and around and it had a u around its leg no way and uh i thought i was seeing you know right. he was shooting an oneida eagle uh-huh. you know, oh yeah I, I hunted with those for a while <laughs> <laughs> and uh we found this with this bull but as um you know we're we're tracking it what happened is um that thing got hung up on branches and was ripping him apart inside and i don't know if it hit the heart initially but it got it eventually when it was coming through when we found the arrow it was almost a complete you horseshoe uh because it's just cheap aluminum or whatever and how that happened because it was a fairly typical corner and away shot so whatever that animal did i'm assuming when it went in it brought its leg back and bent the arrow and then um uh you know talking about all this stuff we I don't know how this, I killed a, a buck in 2003, probably four in the high country and, uh, cleaning it out. There's broadhead in its spine. Deer was fine. I mean, we watched the deer for eight hours before I killed it uh-huh. and I got up there and I, what the hell? And it was wedged in its vertebrae. Um, it was a thunderhead uh-huh. and, uh, I don't, I mean, it was fine. I don't know. It was old. It had cartilage built around it. It looked like a cyst or whatever on the inside. And I took it apart and sure shit, it was a thunderhead. So, you know, people say, talk bad about, you know, compound or traditional archery or, you know, archery. I found a lot of bullets and a lot of animals I've killed. So it's not just archers. I mean, or compound guys or or traditional guys, but. Yeah. There's the, the fallacy of, you know, you hit him with a rifle and they're either going to be dead or you missed him. It's not, uh, not the case. No, no. And I've guided enough guys where that's not true, but, but yeah, what I was, uh, talking about as far as the mistakes, like you're talking about glassing, but when I was talking about like that final, seems like I've a lot of guys have a, a lot of trouble in that hundred yard and in range of, I mean, the, the stick bow helps this as far as, you know, patience, cause you just can't, you know, lob an arrow, but, um, being too patient is is one where, and you've talked about that before, where guys take forever to, right. to get in. And then the other thing too is, you know, if you've, um, you know, you know, you're going in on a on a deer, and I talk about guys this all the time, and and they they don't see it, and rather than still hunting or creeping in slow, they're probably going quite a bit faster than they should be. And then you get tunnel vision, you're not scanning well enough, where if you're yeah. truly and then they blow it out where they're they're inside shooting range. They're just right. not being cautious enough. And I that's I think that's a, a new guy problem, but you know, well, everybody, everybody still has This is it, an but. old guy problem for me. <laughs> Cuz I've I mean, I've I've blown out so many deer by getting that that same tunnel vision either 
you know, once you glassed them up, then then you're not looking around enough to to spot them when you have the perspective, or maybe you're in tight enough that um, you know you're not able to see the the surrounding area well enough, and and uh, so consequently you go in on a deer and there's another one bedded nearby and, and, uh, that one picks you off. Um, I've, I've had that happen where I've, you know, spotted them in a bedding area and where I, you know, initially I'm only 75 yards or hundred yards from where, where I spotted them and then have a deer that's off to the side that, um, in fact, I've got, you know, on that first video, um, that one, that one little spike or something that, that picked me off and, and blew out, um, that one, uh, you know, ended it. And I, I just, you know, so focused on what was in front of me, I wasn't looking at three o'clock to the side there. And so it's a, it's a mistake that still gets me, but I think that, um, you know, not being an aggressive enough is, is probably, um, something that a lot of guys, you know, where they're, they're too afraid they're, you know, pulling their socks off at 200 yards or their boots off at 200 yards. And, doing a really quiet sneak from way far out when they they should be trying to s still get in you know get in tight faster and then the deer you know gets up um and moves when they're still way out of range the um last you know that one in the dugout that i i did like a full-on uh barefooted matrix cliff to cliff like a had vertical walls and it was really loud on the so yeah. i put my feet on one side my hands on the other <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it was uh, do the spider-man yeah like a, like, like an old school burglar or something. well uh, uh -huh. i think omni was above me he was like that's pretty impressive for a big guy and i was like you know the adrenaline of killing something will carry your fat ass through anything but i got down there i'm like why did i pull my boots off jesus they're used to rocks falling they didn't even move their freaking head you yeah. know and i i was kicking rocks down but a rock is a lot they're used to rocks falling occasionally I got down to the bottom. I'm like, man, I really wish I had my boots. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. What, uh, Frank, when you shot that wide one there, you were on that. For, you tracked that thing around the whole damn mountain. What happened with that? Uh, that one was on the, uh, I think I killed that on like the ninth or tenth day of a backpack hunt. So that was, I saw this group, seen, saw, saw this group of bucks on uh, on a on a uh, scouting trip that I went on like the, a week before season, but that buck wasn't with them. So this was kind of like my backup plan. But um, yeah, I was kind of doing like what, what South was saying, you know, you, you'd hunt an area for a few days, move, hunt an area for a few days, I actually uh, uh, stashed some food along this route that I had. So I, I didn't have to have like 10, 10 days worth of food with me. But um, yeah, it was just like a, a backup plan thing and ended up finding these bucks again. And they were just feeding around this peak kind of like what um some of the bucks that we've been seeing have been doing uh i put a plan together and ended up on that stock for like six hours waiting for him to <laughs> <laughs> waiting for him to, to come into a position where i could shoot him from uh from these cliffs it ended up being like a 60 yard shot so yeah because you showed me the photos that you were above them for ever weren't you yeah for at least six hours yeah just tr trying to figure out a, a spot where i could shoot him from but um, when I was above them, they were probably anywhere between 90 and 100 yards, and they were just moving down this ribbon of of cliff, but they stayed out far enough to where I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to shoot at them from that far away. How um, wait, that was you, I think you that was the first time you used those wind floaters too, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah. wasn't the wind blowing down at them and you dropped one? Well, it was like 
it was coming over the at my back, and I was like, man, this is a little sketchy. So I dropped one, but it would go over the top, and then it would just shoot back up. Yeah. So it was coming. Thermals like are that. are pretty amazing when yeah. you can use those wind floaters to really see them because there are times when it's like, how are those things not smelling me? Mm-hmm. And then you realize that you know the major canyon behind you where the wind's coming out of and hitting you in the back is not what's going on fifty or hundred yards below you. Yeah, I, I um, man, I've been I can't remember who told me to use those. I've been using them for a long you know years now, and I I. Uh, there's a few, they don't all, you know, sometimes you don't need them, but there's a few times where, you know, if you've got an animal, what, whatever it may be in a position, you, you definitely get the binos out and you can watch those little bastards for quite some time. And sometimes it tells you things where you're like, oh, I can get away with, you know, getting in there, getting into a certain point of cover where you could start a, maybe a different approach where you just didn't think you could from what the wind's doing where you're at at that specific you know, time. If they dyed those things like blaze orange or something, that would be yeah. solid. You got to be uh, on it, doggone it, when the wind's cranking with the binos because you can lose them pretty quick yeah. unless you drop the whole container out. But they, they are handy. Um, when uh, questions, guys, were, you know, given, you know, like I was talking about whatever, listener questions, when you – um, so the the way they – I think they were curious about what – I think Frank does the same thing. I have a rangefinder with me all the time. Whether I use it on the shot is 50, just dependent. I am very gotten to a point. I pre-range specific items in front of me when applicable to know the distance I am from the animal. So it just tells me kind of that level of alertness I need to be at. So from a thousand yards away, I'll pre-range. Um huh. And, you know, even, you know, 400 yards, I'll prearrange different, you know, topography or terrain features. So if I get to, it's a lot to remember, but if there's a patch of trees and I'm 250, uh, and then I get to, you know, a rock outcropping and now I'm 95, I know noise level, speed level and everything else in exact distance. And I I learned that from a, a, a guy, a sheep hunter buddy of mine, and it's worked really well, um, do you ever do that? Man, I haven't carried a rangefinder in so long, and it's probably <laughs> <laughs> to my detriment, you know, and, and it's part of it is just being stubborn as far as being a, you know, trad guy and, and probably not wanting to catch flack from from the guys that are, are um, you know, more hardcore purists, which I'm not really all that concerned about, but I, I just don't use it when I'm shooting, so I've never really thought about bringing it along with me for you know for that specific reason but it makes a lot of sense i i think what it part of it was is he was a guide mm-hmm. and he had his his final friendly line of we get to that we yeah. can shoot for you know for maybe any experienced shooters right. or and 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 that's where he did it and also of um as you're going in if those animals moves kind of almost like a predetermined hiding area where you can hang out if they let's say they if you're archery hunting they get up and start feeding um you know if you're kind of caught in the open you know oh we can low crawl up to to this position and we're sub whatever and he doesn't have to range it ahead of time it's more you know he can snap shoot quicker or have someone shoot maybe a little faster more with a rifle obviously than a bow but it's worked fairly well you don't always need to do it but it it's certainly um 
if you're looking at a fairly large clump of trees and, you know, that puts you in within 50, right? you know, may, there may be a chance it may not be in shooting distance with a, like a stick bow, you might with a compound, that's a good place to hang out in hopes they get up and they might feed towards you. Right. Um, so, but yeah, Frank, you got anything? No, I definitely say I do that within a hundred yards for sure. Like, you know, you see the deer or whatever animal it may be. And you I just like to range something like say, I want to get within 50 yards. I need to get to that spot so you know kind of where you want to be like you're saying to shoot from yeah i mean it seems to i don't know it helps sometimes but uh another question guys had had um the this uh, bino harness thing i think um you're working on one with someone right now and then i think you're using the same one that we are the the adac but you used the bungee forever yeah um I'm assuming that was noise and movement because it's a pain in the ass getting them out of a harness. But why did you use it? Was that something you were just comfortable with or was it just... Talk about the bungee? The bungee, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, that kind of predated the bino harness and that's primarily why I used it. And uh, for guys that are uninitiated to that, it's basically you use the more or less the stock, you know, bino strap, but then there was a piece of surgical tubing that went around your your back you know and um, across your chest there would and it would clip into your binoculars and you know keep it from flopping um, you know as you're running or moving fast and and that setup uh, kind of predated the the bino harness that we know of today um, crooked horn was one of the first people to come out with yeah. the actual suspender type right yoke but that bounced up that bounced the balls off you if you weren't careful. It hit, I, it hit you in the face if you were running. I yeah. Mean, it wasn't really conducive to all of that. And both of those, I mean, the attachment point was like, you know, up at the top end of the binocular. So you still had that bottom part of the binocular that was really flopping if you had to cover ground. So it wasn't, you know, super practical. But the good thing about that um, is that it's, you know, really, really quiet. Whereas getting binoculars in and out of a bino harness nowadays, like, uh, you know, some, most of them are made out of, um, out of some, you know, cordura nylon or something like that. And to me, um, you know, if you're hunting with a compound and you're shooting stuff at 60, 70 yards, it's maybe not as much of a factor. But if you're trying to get in close or even with a compound, if you do end up in close, then uh, getting your binoculars in and out of a cordura case to me is just an unacceptable amount of noise. It's um, the one thing with all of them uh, when there's a little... It gets damp. They, yeah. They squeak coming right. in and out. So I've actually, in Alberta, I had to do it. I put a fleece, stuck it to my yeah. eye caps. Yeah. That, yeah. You can get that adhesive back fleece. So, I mean, even if you're using one of those Cordura harnesses, you know, line the inside of that thing with a quieter material. I mean, it still doesn't take care of the louder exterior material, but just that noise getting them in and out. Um, for me it's too much noise yeah another thing amy was laughing because i was talking about the um, uh, rick young makes a bungee one that that i like but the attachment point is not conducive to stick bow hunting it's got a metal ring and plastic and it's ching ching oh yeah i was explaining to her you know i'm like all right you know moose is scared shitless of everything and we're shooting and i dropped them Uh and it ching and moose just snapped his head back and i'm like and moose has no fear of anything like a deer, right? Moose has nothing that has ever harmed him in his life. This deer is going to get the fuck out of Dodge quick. And so, because she was, I was tying uh, D-loop material for my loops to silence them down. She was asking why. And I'm like, this thing's just loud. And something I didn't really worry about when I shot a, 
compound. Now I kind of have to worry about everything. Well, Matt Davis, he blew, I don't know how big that deer was. I mean, it, that first one, he brushed his hand against the harness. Yeah. Uh, he wiped his snot off his nose, and then when he was bringing his hand back, and that blew that deer out. And he basically walked upright to that deer in Alberta's 180, 200-inch deer. We we weren't, this is told through Lander. Yeah. And he got so close to it so quick, he was stuck there, and he was, you know, it's cold. And, his, right. you know, my nose drips like crazy. And I think he just, you know, you can imagine this. Yeah. Well, I, that's all it takes for a deer to come out right. of his deer bed. And that's one of the one of the bummer things about hunting with a stick bow is, you know, you got your quiver, all those fletch, feather fletchings, man. You talk about a noisemaker. I got a vein now, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm. Are they loud? Are they not? They're not very loud. Hell they're no, they're not flexible. loud. They're quieter in the air, and they're they. When you brush your, I about blew that deer out in Alberta. I, I had corrugate guide pant nylon pants. Uh huh. Fuck man, that feather hit that. It oh, might yeah. as well have just been one of those marmots going, "Hey!" Right. And I mean that deer at forty eight yards snapped his head back, and I was like, I mean, I had thirty seconds. He didn't move, and I yeah. didn't either. And luckily, he brought his head back around. But the veins without getting bashed more for coming out of these veins, they don't make noise. Yeah. Or they don't make noise in the air either. It's not very uh, pierced of you. No, it's not. I get told that constantly. You just need to, need to take a pen and draw in little <laughs> I'm more of a, <laughs> quills. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I did that on the one. I took black Sharpie and drew uh, them on there. I um, I I mean, and I get it, you know, as far as that goes. Like, I understand if, if, they, if feathers have worked for you. I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not there here to tell you not to use them. It's just there is some bonuses to yep. the, the vein and, and noise is certainly both in flight and like you said you got five or six three or four right. fletched noisemakers and yep. uh, somebody was like oh put a a bag over them and you do that too even that little bastard's loud getting it off like um, a fleece it's not bag over. or something yeah 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 and then i mean you keep one arrow you know your your kill arrow outside of it so that you can just pop it off really quickly but then I mean, I don't know how many times I've got a second shot at animals <laughs> by more than I want to admit. <laughs> Yanking that <laughs> but, bag off. Yeah, try, or trying to, you know, you pop it out of the arrow clip and then you have to pull the broadhead and arrow down and then pull it back up to get it out of the, uh, you know, to clear the fletching um, bag there, fletching cover. It just, it does make more movement, does take more time. And it, and it also, you know, more than likely you got to take your eyes off of what you're you're looking at and uh, to be able to make sure that you're manipulating it properly and as quietly as you can. So there, there are some drawbacks to it for sure. I haven't played around yet. I just, I picked up some of those trad veins in the three inch. Um, I just got them in the other day and uh, they're actually, I think the three inch are two and five eighths or two and 11 sixteenths or something. So they're closer in length. I'm shooting some inch and seven eighths feathers so really short feathers yeah. on yeah. my setup right now which helps i in, in intentionally i went shorter you know because i could uh with my setup it's enough stabilization with it but um you know smaller smaller surface area feather is going to make less noise it's also less likely i'm going to drag it across something and and uh create more noise but i'm hoping that those uh two and five eighths feathers or veins rather will uh will be pretty similar to the inch and seven eighths feathers i've got yeah i bet they'll be pretty close yeah. they're probably gonna be about a grain and a half heavier per 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 fletch but that's not good i mean it's not enough to make a huge no, difference not um, enough for my shooting ability no i was actually listening to 
the Stickbow Chronicles this morning, and they had a a guy on there. He's I think he said he was sixty eight, but he was buddies with Schaefer, and he was laughing. Uh-huh. They were talking about the vein thing, and they were like, "Well, that's all he shot was veins." He yeah, said, yeah. And I'm like, "Okay, good. I can't get maybe the people leave me alone." Um, I doubt it. No, probably not. You're right. <laughs> um, the yeah, never use one of those little shelf things or shelf risers or whatever the heck that's, he did. He had that bare weather rest. I um. Well, South brought me down a boat a day, um, which I guess is part of the reason why we're doing the podcast. So I appreciate bringing that. Um, you drilled out that fishing <laughs> Shout line. Shout out to South. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you brought you, we drilled it out for that fishing line, mm-hmm. um, rest or, you know, and that, that's basically 30 pound test jammed in a 22 tail shell case. You got to burn the end and you stick it in a hole. It's just to elevate it. But I, uh, that bare weather rest, I got a lot, a lot of guys use that. It's just stick it on and I don't, I guess it's not. The problem with that bare weather rest is that um, it, it really brings you out away from the strike plate a lot. And uh, and so, you know, if you've got a, a setup where you're shooting off the shelf and and then you want to try veins out, chances are it's going to change your aerospine just because of how much um, it brings out away from the shelf. You're going to, you know, ch- basically changing the center shot of your bow. Yeah, I was certainly surprised how many people – didn't believe me that you can shoot those veins off the the shelf. I just started using an elevated rest because guys were asking me about how they flew, and so I tried it, and then I it is cleaner. It yeah. Is, yeah, it's a lot more accurate, so that's why I stuck with it because um, it does work fairly. How do you attach that shell the, thing? The, Did you say you jam it in some hole? So you drill just a seven thirty. Oh, you have to drill into your bow. Yeah, drill into your bow, and then you just it's just a hole, and you just stuff it in there. Um, now I done shit. We could barely get it out there. Yeah. <laughs> you just take a pair of pliers to get it out. <laughs> yeah, you just wedge it in there, and it doesn't wear out either. The bare weather rest does wear out, and and that is South brought up a good point with that fishing line rest. You can adjust whether you know you put um like a, I've been screwing around with like a upholstery patch kit for a strike plate because it's super thin, or you can throw like a toothpick behind it or or whatever, and and then Velcro and bring it out so it like helps with tuning. Some guys use um, is that an AccuTune? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you're thing. having to drill a hole and thread your riser, though. Yeah. Which you know, a lot of guys. I'm running. I run an internal I beam in my riser, so I've got a lot more latitude on what I can do as far as perforating the riser with holes and threading it, drilling and tapping, and all that. But yeah, um, some of the risers, you know, wood risers, it's not a good idea to just go whole hog. Always consult your boiler <laughs> <laughs> you <might laughs> before have, you turn it into Swiss cheese. Your three-piece is going to be a four-piece real right, quick. Yeah. Right, Yeah. It the, looked like one of those early uh, mountain rambler rifles that Patrick made with all the holes in the stock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Patrick took a – trying to make lightweight rifles. He just mm-hmm. Swiss cheese the shit out of a stock, and he pushed that thing to – I mean – yeah, I I would have been tying a string to the trigger when right. he was flying it, but he pushed it to the far. He got it sub five pounds, which in the day when back in the day when he did that, it was a much bigger deal than now. There's a lot of you know yeah. super lightweight rifles now, but that thing had to kick like a mule at five pounds, huh? Well, yeah, depending upon the caliber. caliber. Yeah, but it's funny they you know I'm not a a gun guy, and they gave me one when we were uh, partners of ours were going to come back out with it. They gave me one for that bear hunt, and we. It was nice. We backpacked in like 12 yeah. miles, and uh, I ended up shooting that fucking bear like 27 yards with that rifle. I could kill it with a bow. But I, uh, when I went in, I think I had th- the 308 barrel on it. Uh, and, um, yeah, it wasn't 
I mean, it didn't kick at all, but I'm sure if you were firing a 300 rum, you'd probably remember its name mm-hmm. the next. <laughs> but, uh, Have a tattoo of the buttstock on your shoulder. Oh, yeah, no shit. Well, if it is Lander's gun, you'll be blind from the scope. <laughs> oh, um, dude. Do you yeah. notice that, though? Yeah. His scope. His scope was so far back, he, yeah. What is that? What caliber is that? Uh it's like a forty-five seventy. Yeah, forty-five seventy. Something. Yeah. I mean, you're gonna it'll blind you if you shoot. He's it. probably back there snickering every time someone shoots it. Well, he never brings <laughs> it anyway, so it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but oh lord, what? Um, oh, gear-wise, guys, we're asking: um, Is there any um, specific gear over the last four or five years for for? And I know you you backpack on and use llamas both, but that uh, sticks out where it's been kind of a huge, you know, big kind of handy for you, I guess. One of my favorite things is uh, just from a, um efficiency standpoint with water has been that um, platypus uh, gravity bag, you know, being able to load up, what is it, four liters, I think that thing holds, and uh, or eight liters. Jeez, I can't even remember now. Um, and then, uh, you know, no pumping, just uh, hang it up in a tree and or if you're lacking in trees, put on top of a boulder, put your dirty water bag full up on top of the boulder, you know, and it just gravity uh, filters right through to your clean water bag. And what I'll do a lot if I'm, uh, say, I'm my water source is in the bottom of a canyon or somewhere remote from where I'm, um, where I'm camped at is I'll filter uh, a, a bag of water, um, clean water, at the water source and then I'll fill up my dirty water bag so I'm carrying back dirty water unfiltered and clean water use the clean water when I get back to camp and then run that through the the filter after I've used my uh, my clean water up so you're able to and it's a sub one pound um, system so it's pretty lightweight and to not I'm so over pumping water to filter it you know and, and I don't I'm not a fan of the chemical tablets there. I just don't like the taste of them. I haven't lived on, you know, well water for a decade and not having to drink chlorine. It's, it's hard for me to, to, uh, to use the tablets. The, um, have you, um, I, cause you got me, you're what, seven years older. How old are you? 50. So yeah, you got me by about seven. Um, so rewind to, to show South stage more than mine. I'm going to say I'm still young. <laughs> um, the, MSR Whisper Light was one of the go-to stoves. Is that uh, yeah? Um, that's what I kind of started out with. Yeah. And then there was this heavy ass. And it might have been a cat. Well, no, Catadin. They sold to Catadin. Maybe it was a pure um, pump, and it was a ceramic filter. Fuck, it was that, like three pounds. That, that was the I had the one I had was a Catadin. Yeah, yeah. And it had the ceramic filter mm-hmm. and a short little uh, uh, machined aluminum stubby little nose on yep, it. Yeah, yeah. That thing about, took forever. It took about <laughs> yeah, and talk uh, about taking some effort to pump. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be able to beat this not at a goofy for like a week. Like I remember, we had kind of the uh, what do you say the the local pumper for the day. We rotated uh, through it, and he'd fill out everybody's you know water. Dude, that guy'd be over there for three hours filling out yeah, a four-man no cruise team. It was it was bad, um, you know, and, and to the point where you know it's about like, do I really need to filter this water? I can just probably drink it. This thing sucks because um, the gear nowadays. Oh man, I God, that had to have weighed two pounds. That filter it was brutal. Yeah. Um, now you have well, what's yours weigh? Twelve ounces, probably. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in there. Twelve, yeah, twelve. And probably filters. 
what an ounce a second maybe more uh let's see it's probably pretty close to that yeah yeah i i timed it once on uh cliff's uh our buddy cliff um uh, looking at it we hung it from the tripod and just uh, had to i'm thinking jesus that's because it's but if it freezes is the only negative right. side you got to make sure and take care of the filter but you know in comparison to um well, we've had yeah, do you, do you and, keep it the filter part in your sleeping bag at night or something? Yeah, or even just in my tent. You know, if I like, if I'm sleeping in a tent with an enclosed space, it'll just don't put it out there in your vestibule. Um, but yeah, if I'm if I'm concerned that it's going to get really cold, then I'll put it in a Ziploc bag and put it in my sleeping bag. Yeah, you can just blow the water out. If you're careful about it, you'll be. You know, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but. The you had when I met you, you probably still have you have an MSR mini works or something, don't you? Sweetwater, Sweetwater, yeah. Um, that one works fairly good too, but yeah, I mean, what are you pumping? I don't know, man. Last year I had that algae pond that I was oh, pumping water out of, and I had the bright idea at the trailhead <laughs> not to bring the cleaning kit for it, oh, no. and that thing jammed up in like the first 20 minutes, and yeah. I had to sacrifice my toothbrush just to clean it. And it, yeah, after <laughs> it, when it when it gets clogged up it just spits water out the top or whatever <laughs> right <laughs> Dude, get like yeah. five or six good pumps in and then it just start, start spewing water out the top and well yeah, it, it was a bit of a nightmare you know not that you need all of these bad things to happen to you but you you do um you know hear certain people giving advice on on uh podcasts or social media and, and they and they haven't had uh i mean the the, the ones that i went to south dakota and hunted and um did not realize how silty it is. The, the, it didn't make it five pumps, and the, the filter was screwed. Right? And it really doesn't take very cloudy water to, no. to load them up. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's not like you're filtering out of a you know a mud puddle where you can't see an inch into it. It just even like a pond that has that kind of um, you know tea colored water will will load them up. Yeah, the 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 silt or like last year, I mine same thing. My, I mean, I the catadins worthless too i mean it filled up quick and so what we it was crazy on that hunt you know because we it's not like fit cleaning it does any good with all the silt as we um we went and actually picked up garbage on the side of the road you know mountain dew bottles and shit people threw out and cleaned them and filled them up in a cattle trough and uh-huh. packed the water back in because you it's the only option you had yeah. so there's certain certain things in certain times that you really um, you know, like I'm never probably going to pack a white gas stove in again, unless it's like extreme conditions. But when the world ends, I guarantee everybody's grabbing a multi-fuel stove. Nobody's grabbing an isobutane caster <laughs> stove because you can burn anything. But that smell reminds me of my childhood uh, yeah. of that, that white yep. gas smell. But well, there are times, I mean, I, I remember, and this is going back to, I think it was Oh three. Um, you know, if you're flying, and uh, flying to where you're going to hunt, then you need to keep in mind, obviously, you can't fly with those propane you know, canisters. I flew um, into a spot in Wyoming, and uh, I think it was into Jackson, and got in there you know, late at night. Obviously, no camping stores open at that hour. You're not going to pick up a fuel canister at a gas station. And then we drove to um, a, a small little town on the, on, I think it was Afton, um, and the next morning we were meeting, um, you know, a, a guy was going to pack us in. So I literally had no time to get fuel and, uh, for my stove. But I, so on that trip, I brought, um, the, 
MSR Whisperlite International, and I literally filled that thing up at the gas pump. Yeah. It was just totally badass. It was, you know, I just went up to the gas pump, and there was some hot chick in the Jeep filling her car <laughs> up, and I'm pumping my, you know, one-quart yeah. little MSR fuel bottle. And, and uh, so it was, yeah, I mean, that was a, a game changer right there. Yeah, we had a, I had a guy at the house the other day um, I was helping him with shooting lessons, and, you know, that pile of stoves I have, and he was like, why would you use this? And I'm like, well, and I brought that up. I said, yeah. you travel anywhere in the world, you can pump something through it. I mean, it'll take diesel fuel, kerosene, white gas, whatever. It's good for bon- bonfires. Yeah, it is very good for bonfires. Yeah. If you can't get your fire started, you just open that thing up and pour it on a log for survival situations. But, you know, it is a bit old school and janky when you see the guy bringing out the aluminum foil skirt to go around it yeah. and fire shooting out of the top, waiting for the pisser to heat up and... Not quite as easy as just firing up the uh, MSR reactor or whatever, <laughs> cooking and eating. But yeah, these this newer generation of uh, backpack hunters don't know how well they got it. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, you had it even worse than uh, than me. I remember the the fo- the sleeping pad was those shitty ass green foam army yep. pads. It's about as thick as this pad right here, and about as comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was bad. It, uh, but you know, now I'm kind of a weenie i guess because i get so i sleep on a four inch freaking sleeping pad you got mm-hmm. a cot yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah that's pretty sick that got caught how much uh would you carry that in if you didn't have llamas for some no hunts? no i don't think i would um believe yeah, me I, I just watched your video and i was looking at it thinking hmm yeah i might get one of them i can take it i'm still young i'll pack that fucker in because yeah, they are nice they're then they're light i mean they're sub three pounds um somewhere in that two pound range as i recall um and it is nice it gets you up off the ground you still need to sleep oh if you do use those um bring in a couple of straps um just like web webbing straps with clips to to anchor your sleeping pad because <laughs> dude it's like it is brutal without them shoots off the oh the yeah bottom of it. yeah as yeah. soon as you move a bit man it's like sleeping on a banana peel your sleeping pad just shoots out from underneath your sleeping pad <laughs> or sleeping bag yeah i was in that my buddy was in uh, alaska he took 550 cordon yeah tied it up because he was telling me he's like he's, he's a roller he's like every time i roll i just roll it off the the deal so he took 550 and went around the whole thing to keep it in, in check or yeah whatever. i thought i'd be smart and i i brought some double-sided velcro and, and that didn't yeah that didn't work <laughs> <laughs> oh, adhesive backed velcro i should say yeah but what go ahead i was just gonna say for from an optic standpoint you know back in the day i was using 10s and a spotting scope and and i've now gone to 12s and a spotting scope are you guys um, still using 15s, or where are you guys at? 15s, you know, 10s, 15s, and a spotting scope, or where are you I'm at? I'm a 10, 15 spotter guy. Um, I guess you probably are too. But. Yeah, I don't really ever bring the 15s very often anymore, but 10s and a spotter for me. Yeah. We, we were talking about this uh, with Harold. I had 12s for a season, but, man, I just I don't like hand-holding them. Uh-huh. I just I, I like holding the 10s better. But I mean, a lot of my my spotting's on a tripod though as well. So, yeah, I, I um, for me, it's not the glassing sitting twelves are awesome. It's really more, you know, going in or whatever. I have a little bit harder time holding the twelves, hand holding them. So, and the ten, I mean, honestly, I'd probably be better with eights. But, um, you know, I people ask me all the time my opinion, and I'm like, look, it's it's almost something you got to figure out on your in your right. home. Like, you could ask ten. 
good hunters, then they're probably going to have you're in five and five. You may have got, you know, as far as the eight, yeah. 10, 12 thing, like the Lancasters, those guys all run eights. Um, really? Yeah, they all run eights because they got that spotter. They're like, huh. I can see everything I need to. So they, Brian Martin's another guy. He runs eights. Wow, um, that surprises me. And, uh, and those guys are glad, I mean, they're glassing some distance. Yep. Yeah. And their thing is, is just, um, you know, one stocking, you know, the eights, but hand holding. But he's like, I can pick up anything with eights. I can with tens. And I've got that spotter there to, you know, you know it's interesting. And this is, uh, um, some, you know, real world, um, uh, a real world, uh, example, I guess, is that I was hunting with a buddy of mine in Nevada a number of years ago. And, uh, I had a pair of 10, 10 power uh, Nikons. He had a pair of eight power Nikons. And we're sitting side by side, same exact model, you know, just eights and tens was the only difference. And we were glassing or uh, down the bottom of this canyon. And I picked up a buck underneath this tree. And uh, so I'm pointing it out, you know, it's like, okay, you know, third tree up, you know, just up from the creek, yada, yada. And he's like, you couldn't find it. Couldn't see it. And uh, so I, we traded binoculars and just that two power, and it wasn't that far away. Yeah. It was, you know, we were, cause we were glassing in the bottom, but we were also glassing across the canyon. And obviously it was a lot further across. And, uh, and when I took his eights, I couldn't see it either. Yeah. I thought he was just blind, but once, once I actually picked up his eights, I couldn't pick it out either. And, uh, just an extra two power magnification was, uh, you know, made a difference there. I just, I've never really messed with them enough to, I mean, you don't fix what's not broken. I messed with 12s. In fact, was that set of 12s mine? Uh, no, I think we traded some guy for him. They were ELs, right? Yeah, yeah. I No, I traded Colton. I had 12, and same kind of a thing. I um, I just was like, I can see enough with 10s, and I'm packing it. You know, if I wasn't packing a 6-pound, 95-millimeter, it might be a little bit different. But guys asked, though, and if I had the choice, I'd have 15s on me all the time, but I hardly – I only have them on probably 15 20% of the time because when I got to carry them in because I don't want to – pack right. them but yep. man as far as glassing man 15s are the bomb.com for me i i love glassing with 15s i'm just too much of a pussy to pack them around a lot of times <laughs> you run 15s much no um i i've uh i had a pair of zeiss 15s and i had a pair of you ever use doctor optics i don't even know if they're still in existence that, i say a long time ago yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i had a pair of their 15s and but this was before i really probably you know you would have utilized them to the degree that i should have um and i've i've never had a pair of the Swaro 15s i probably should pick up a pair just to to uh try hunting with them but it's been you know 20 20 years anyway since i've had a pair of 15s yeah so it's for me I, i went from the 10s and now i'm using the 12s and i just love them um i'm using the 65 millimeter scope just from a weight standpoint i've got a uh, I think I've got a 80 millimeter Swarovski, as I remember. I haven't even I haven't used that dusted that thing off in probably a decade. But it probably wouldn't be a bad idea if I got it back out again, just to compare it to the 65 and yeah. see if I want to, you know, see if the light gathering ability, because it's still the same 20 to 60, and and uh, you know make it make a decision. It's a be a, it's a shame to let it sit on the shelf. Yeah, we had the Swarovski. 95 and the Zeiss 95 yesterday John brought his up and uh and uh it's crazy when you get that good a glass so my mule deer target where you know it's 100 and not that far you know 120 yards from where we were and 
you can see ants, you know, climbing on the face of it and, you know, looking at the different, you know, because everybody asks what you should get, which is another, you can't go wrong with either yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the optic thing, I guess, while we're going down rabbit holes, uh, Frank and I suggest the same thing, but a guy, you know, hey, uh, I got a $1,000, which spotter should I get? And I'm like, well, which binos do you have? Right. And they'll be like, well, I've got a Vortex uh, Viper Razor. And I'm like, well, you should sell those and uh, take that $1,000 and, and buy some, um, you know, Zeiss uh, SFs or Swarovski SLCs or ELs and uh, start your start with those and then later on get a spotter. And a lot of guys don't believe me, but... It's the smartest thing I think you could ever do is just buy the highest end glass the first time. The other ones do okay, but you're doing okay with binoculars and buying a below mid-range at a $1,000 spotter, which isn't horrible, but I think you'd be a lot happier with just spending the two, three grand on the binoculars and, and then maybe later on getting a spotter. What do you think? I agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the percentage of time that I spend looking through my binoculars compared to looking through my spotting scope and how many animals that I see that I find through my binoculars versus through my spotting scope, it's I mean, it's probably ninety five percent more time spent looking through my my uh, binoculars than through a spotting scope. And and so if you know if you're to weigh that on where you want to put your money. Um, if you're going from a pair of mid-range to a pair of high-end binoculars, I'd, I'd rather do that. Yeah. You know, and I'd rather spend a little bit less money on my bow, for that matter, and uh, get a better pair of binoculars. And a lot of guys, you know, they get hung up on the, you know, the sexy bow. But, I mean, geez, you look at what we were doing with compounds 20 years ago, and you get laughed out of off the shooting range yeah. with one of those nowadays. But, I mean, they were effective back then, and they still can be now. I'm thinking 98, uh, 20 years ago, mm, man, that would have been right in the Hoyt PowerTech UltraTech uh, time frame. First Matthew came out right around FX, I think is what, uh, what the hell was that first Matthews called? Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, PSE was about to lose a lot of ground to Matthews. That was right in that era. Yeah. PSE was crushing it, and then Matthews just destroyed them. Sorry, Pete Shepley. Uh they came out with the MQ-32. Yeah. The and bow that I shot the best from a compound standpoint was, uh, let's see, that would have been 1997, the 3D Vapor, Matthew's yeah. 3D Vapor. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of their first ones. Yeah, and that one, man, I, I, was, I shot the heck out of that thing. I remember um, packing into, or the day before I packed into a um, – the mountains up there in Northern California on a blacktail hunt. I stopped by at a, um, I had a friend that had a, um, a house near the trailhead and I stopped by to visit her and her boyfriend was there, some total redneck. And he's like, Oh, one of them one cam bows. How's that shooting? He had a range, you know, hay bale range out behind the house. And so I went out there and I had, and I shot three arrows and they, um, well shot, two arrows in there or, you know you could have covered it with a quarter at 50 and then shot the knockoff one of those you know in my third shot and then step back to 80 and drop one right in the spot at 80 um and uh he's like wow i'm gonna have to get me one of them you know <laughs> yeah it, it, but, it's amazing i i talk about the same thing it's like the hoyt ultra tech is one of the best bows i've ever shot uh -huh. and you would if we rolled up to a 
3D course with that. You know, I'm sure guys would be like, what the? You'd never be looked at a good shooter shooting that thing, but yeah, it, it was a hell of a bow. What was the, you are talking about it, where'd you get your first bow? I got it from Cabela's. It was a PSC Stinger, like a full setup with a yeah. Worcester biscuit and like a three-pin <laughs> sight and shooting full-length gold tip arrows. Were yeah. they flying good? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's amazing technology as far as uh, that goes. What kills me, too, is um, I'm sure I'll listen to this podcast, but uh, you know, yesterday I was trying to get a guy into an elk area, and he kept sending me screenshots of Onyx maps, and I, I hate looking at a screen. I'm like, uh, you need to go buy a fucking map. I'm yeah. like... Please buy a map. He's like, I will, I will. And I don't know how many guys that only function off of OnX, which OnX is a great app. Yeah. I'm not, but there's Good. something to be said at looking at a map. Yeah. And, and I don't function well without looking at a map because I've looked at them. And so I'm trying to give uh, advice to different guys and they're sending me, they're scrolling, circling the screen, right? Uh, is it this yellow spot? And I'm like, I don't know, that whole one and a half by one and a half square is just not getting it for me of, of a mountain, right? Like I need to see the whole area. I can't, you know, cause I'm, I'm looking at this huge spot where I have different terrain features and I just technology, man. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with on X, but, um, I mean, I think it's a great, you know, um, option for people to use, but I also think learning how to read a map and having a map is pretty important too. And I'm sure, I mean, you, we, I mean, back I, in the day. I still and, ordered, uh, I mean, this new, this elk area, I'm going into Nevada next week. I, I ordered the whole wilderness area and topo maps yeah. and uh, I still use them, you know, and, and of course the area I'm hunting is the confluence of four maps. So, oh, that sucks balls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, you cut them. So what I do is I take it, cut them all apart and then I take, go get some, uh, that clear shelf liner, yep. Yep. you know, and then I overlay that and the adhesive back shelf liner. And then, um, then I got a waterproof map essentially and can trim it to, to, uh, you know, cater to the size or the area I'm hunting. I'm not sure Frank's laughing at you or me, but, uh, that was, so I remember the big thing when I worked for the Forest Service, they had a uh, a waterproof printer. The way oh, you call yeah, that, nice. you stick uh -huh. it in and it rolls out and your your map's waterproof. Oh, laminating. Yeah, yeah laminating, Laminator. yeah. Mm -hmm. it, that was the, like the bee's knees. That was right. a huge deal. You could mark it up. And then later on, I started doing like what you would do. I'd order these maps. I'd cut sections out and I'd take um, two-faced, you know, tape tape them all together and then laminate them together like redneck style. My mom cut bookmarks forever. And so she had all this lamination paper, but then you'd have like four sections of lamination paper just overlap to make right. it waterproof. You'd have this horrible ass sticky map. You could Look kill like somebody with. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But that was, um, kind of, that's all you, you know, you had back then. And yeah. I will say now, like you do get lazy. Um, I say lazy, you can get away with a lot more now by far with GPS is finding your camp. Like I can have a pretty, you know, a dog hair thick timber and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to find this where I spent hours yeah. trying to find tents before. And yeah. I can only imagine you've been in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not very fun when you're, <laughs> especially after dark, you know, and the fo fog is the worst because you talk about disorienting, man. I mean, that's the absolute worst. I've gotten so turned around in the fog is, you know, in an area that I've, spent a lot of time in too and <laughs> if you go into a new area and the fog rolls in or clouds roll in or whatever yeah i i may have told the story before there but a buddy of mine was sheep hunting up in alaska and i uh, um uh, 
same thing. Fog rolled in and, and uh, you know, started getting dark. So I started heading back to this tent and got turned around and wandered around most of the night, you know, trying to find his tent and finally just gave up and put both feet in a marmot hole, put his jacket on and just, you know, laid there on the ground and shivered all night and then woke up the next morning when the, when the, uh, Fog lifted, sun popped out, and he was 50 yards from his tent. (laughs) (laughs) You've been lost, bad? Yeah, yeah, I've been lost, but not in the mountains, more out east in some canyon lands. Yeah, it's easier to get, to me, lost in flatter land than it is. Yeah, no landmarks, yeah. Dude, I about got lost in Alabama, like following a deer, everything's flat, Uh going through and looking around. Next thing you know, I forgot the direction I came from. I'm looking in a circle thinking I have no idea which way the tree stand is like not even a clue and uh, luckily i was able to pick up some of my tracks but with the mountains there's terrain features right. you can at least and there's a, you'll, you have a prominent peak that you yeah. can use as a you know as, as a landmark and and then kind of know okay well that was over here and all of a sudden you know it's over here so i know i need to go back this way or yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah i've um trying to think uh telling stories um road hunting for blacktails in, in Oregon, um, mm-hmm. well, bench legs. And uh, one rifle hunting as a kid, I was probably 14, cotton pants and a hoodie. And yeah. one of the many times I almost died as a kid, jumped out of the truck, took off after it, because a lot of times I'll hit clear cuts and you get a shot. And yeah. I don't know, 18 hours later, we got back to the truck. <laughs> we ended right. up actually finding an abandoned, well, I say it's abandoned. It's abandoned in my mind now. We probably broke into somebody's summer home and slept in there, stayed in there and built right, a fire. Right. and. It was bad. And I mean, cotton pants. I remember my legs from my knees to my cock and balls were raw from snow chafing. and jeans mm-hmm. from chafing. Yep. Where now, like, I mean, I guess some hardcore Alex, he hunted in jeans for a while. But nowadays, man, the technology is just pretty amazing, even with clothing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, people ask me, is it worth it? You know, is and it's like, well, you know, if it makes a difference to you coming off the mountain or staying on the mountain right there to me, that makes it worth it. Yeah. Well, Kevin Underwood said something the other day. He's a little, kind of an ultra lightweight guy. I don't mm-hmm. know him. And, uh, you know, he said a lot of people, which he's right, you know, people need to toughen up. And it's a matter of discomfort, hunger, and something else. If you can deal with that, you can deal with a lot lighter weight pack. Yeah. But most people can't deal with that. So they come right. home early. So, yeah, everybody run a lightweight pack. So I don't have to deal with you yeah. in the mountains. But the amount of discomfort, most people, especially new hunters, aren't going to be able to handle that. I, I don't think, I haven't met in too many people roll into a 10-day backpack hunt and just crush it out of the gate because yeah. they're just not prepared. Even like we were talking about um, last year with you, you know, even the terrain, a lot of guys don't realize it can get pretty, no different like first time you got in a tree stand. You've been in cliffs your whole life. You're not afraid of heights. How much was it of a pucker factor in the tree stand? I didn't like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get a wind and that thing starts swaying. <laughs> and trees moving around. Yeah. You feel like you're up on the flag on top of a flagpole. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's something else. Yeah. I mean, you take food deprivation, sleep deprivation, cliffs, weather, everything else. Um, you know, as far as guys, I don't think they're, you know, they're kind of biting off more than they could chew sometimes and depriving you of some pretty comfort gear or clothing can certainly push you off even quicker. Um, yeah, and there, it, what it becomes is a lot of little things. It's not necessarily, you know, one big thing, but it's the, the you know, discomfort or um, unfamiliarity of, you know, anywhere from, all, and all these things will stack up to the point where it, it'll overwhelm, you know, a, a person who hasn't 
been in the mountains. I mean, it's a, you know, being away from social media, your phone for, you know, the newbies or for the, the you know, the, this new generation. And then it's, um, you know, sleeping on a tent, it's dealing with condensation and dampness. It's being a little bit cold. It's getting wet. It's getting your socks and boots wet. It's, uh, you know, eating unfamiliar food. It's, you know, discouragement from not, you know, getting up opening morning and seeing a basin full of bucks. It's discouragement from, you know, seeing other hunters in your area, um, the fatigue from backpacking in, the sore muscles, all these things will start to accumulate and add up. And, um, you know, when you've been in doing it for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, then, uh, you know, all these things are, you know, are, you get familiar with that, that, uh, that feeling and the discouragement and you kind of just push through it. But when you start stacking all these things on top of each other for, for the new guy, it's, I think it's, it can be overwhelming and, uh, or, or build to that point where it gets overwhelming and you're, you're almost better just, you know, biting off smaller increments and to try to tackle the whole thing in one fell swoop. And be a good t-shirt, become familiar with pain and you'll be a better backpack hunter. <laughs> it's too, yeah. That's too big of a slogan. Yeah, probably. <laughs> sure somebody, somebody, I can think of two people right now will probably coin that phrase, change it around. It'll be theirs. They'll be putting on their next video. But, uh, I think the, um, kind of the moral to the story with all of that or whatever is, um, you know, obviously you got to get the best gear you can with the budget, but there, there's definitely, don't carry a giant heavy pack because there's a happy medium for everything. But I will say I like to sleep and I like to eat. Those are two things yep. I, I kind of need. Like if I don't have those two things, um, when I say I like to sleep, I don't sleep very much. So I need to take the maximum amount of sleep I possibly can. So I'm carrying a 20 ounce sleeping pad. Um, yep. I just need to try and sleep. And, and Frank and I, I don't know how much you eat. I mean, you and I got to be pumping 3,500 calories a day in. I mean, we eat a lot. Yeah, I find I eat probably less up there on the mountain than I do at home usually. And, and uh, it'll, you know, it may be part of that is just the interest level in what I bring or, you know, food <laughs> yeah. burnout or like that. But, yeah. yeah. We ordered, uh, there's these specific cookies that we get from uh, uh, natural grocers there. I get them. And I ordered them yesterday from Amazon, and I, I got them in. I told Amy, I was like, you got to hide these fuckers. What are they? I, they're, they're, there's one, it's Expresso, Expresso Explosion uh, cookie. I don't know if you ever had one. I hardly ever get, they're 480 calories. So they're not something you want to eat too many of. But I got those in for one of each day, and I told Amy, I was like, you got to hide these, or I'll eat them all before the damn hunt even even starts. But what what's your go-to food now, Frank, for, for not dinners, but snacks? For snacks, Dan. I don't know. I, I still like Quest bars. Yeah, the, they're good. The Oreo Quest bars; those are pretty good. I, yeah. I don't really generally get tired of those. I had the birthday cake. I may have had too many times. I've had to. That has like a that. weird, a weird, uh, like fake sugar taste to it. After a while, the sprinkles. You, you, you would drink that Bomar uh, birthday cake protein, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You like the sprinkles and that? I think those taste fucking gross. Well, it depends on what I'm doing with it. If I make a protein drink. I don't mind it, but I made protein pancakes and I not so much. But yeah, the protein drink I didn't mind at all. Yeah, most of our stuff's too good though. I like I like all of his stuff. Yeah, I've oh, tried. Yeah. I ordered uh, some boxes of their bars. Have you had their bars? Mm. I got some of those for backpacking in at the house. Um, food food wise, I, yeah, I definitely don't want to starve too much. Um, 
this year as far as food goes. But I don't think I'm going to bring the. I think I'm butthole sandwiched spam. out. No spam. <laughs> I think I've just had too much. I like I like peanut butter and bacon, but the whole bagel peanut butter bake. I think I've just had too many. I just I can't do them anymore. Yeah, Not was at the rate I was. I was getting old after a few days, especially after a few days of sitting in your pack. That it seems like the bacon almost gets soggy, and it's like <laughs> chewing a piece of gristle. Kinda. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I've uh, tried it with like Nutella before, and I don't know. It's just, just not yeah, the same. Just, no, I don't. Not. You know what's kind of nice though? Like I don't ever eat them hardly ever. Is uh, pop tarts? Yeah, you ever bring them in? Yeah, I get the unfrosted ones. Yeah, the, the frosted <laughs> ones a little too too heavy on the sugar there. But I was doing them every year, every food bag there for a while, and I got burnout. Just like you know, you do the uh, instant oatmeal and the same thing. You do too much of one thing and. After a while, I get tired of it. But mixing up your food bags is is like almost a detrimental. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's kind of nice is making your own breakfast. I know uh, Spencer with Off Grid, he makes the breakfasts now. But yeah. like just getting a granola and some chocolate protein powder and some espresso, chocolate espresso beans and like some craisins or whatever. It that's, is. That's super good, man. Sliced like, almonds. Like yeah. 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 I've done that for, for quite a while. The uh, recently... Not to pimp out the Bomars, but they came up with all that almond butter. Oh, yeah. So I had cinnamon toast crunch almond butter. <laughs> There's blueberry or uh, something crunch crunch berry almond butter, apple almond. I ordered, I have a pile of them. Huh. I'm just going to pack some of those in to like eat it jar. like ice cream. The jar. Yeah. So I did that, uh, that Justin's vanilla. Yeah. I did that once. And I, and I, you know, those big things at Jiffy, peanut butter, Peter Pan, the big ones. Yep. I packed one of those in on a mountain goat hunt, and um, I just ate it. <laughs> I just the spoon. I'd get, I love peanut butter. I'd get back. I had honey packets. I'd squirt it in there and eat it. And guys didn't think it was a good idea, but everybody's trying to eat my peanut butter. I'm like, get away from it. It wasn't the only thing I had, but it uh, it definitely was one of my st- snacks when I got back. I just can't stop eating peanut butter. It's good and, and jelly. But I was making like triple decker jelly sandwiches on the goat hunt with Bart and he's like dude you got to stop eating I didn't bring enough food and I'm like what do you mean and he's like every every sandwich you make is a half a jar of peanut butter and a half a jar of jelly and three slices of bread I did not like prepare for this <laughs> I wasn't ready not a big enough allowance of food there yeah he was laughing I was like all right man we'll have to kill out soon then but anyway well the one thing we forgot to talk about um which we're still not ready. I think we got another week is, uh, your, your stalker pack, which were, so it got the name the Bane because I made that meme of Bane and you when you were working on the bow. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I did the, the Batman Bane guy with the mask. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. his name's uh-huh. Bane. Okay. And, uh, and you, cause you <laughs> had your mask on. So right. I made that meme and then we were gonna, we couldn't, all the names were taken and I'd do a yeah. stalker. So, I'm like, well, let's just call it the Bane, and no one's going to know what the hell that means unless they listen to the podcast. But that's where it came from was the meme I made. But I think actually um, I'm hoping they have one for you today. But I know next week I think we're releasing those. Um, uh, I think anyway that the sometime next week, and it's basically just like a final approach pack where you've got a pocket to put your – like a grab it to put your shoes. It's fairly close to what you want. I think the only thing we missed was uh, – a. I don't think we got your sock pockets. We made you one specifically with two little pockets for uh-huh. socks, but the the final one just has a big grab it, and it's actually nice. You can fit now jeans and your boots in there. Oh, right on. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully you'll end up yeah, you know, I mean, liking it. Just earlier in this podcast, you mentioned wishing you wouldn't uh, 
you would have had your boots when you took yeah. them off early on a stock. And those are, that's the kind of exact scenario that I was thinking about when, you know, I was dreaming this pack up um, is, you know, to be able to carry that stuff with you. Because, you know, particularly like if you're um, on an elk hunt or, you know, where you, I mean, I've, I've dropped my pack or my boots on an elk hunt, had it get, you know, and was stalking a, a bull in my socks and it had to get dark on me and didn't get my boots back till the next day. Yeah. Um, so to be able to carry them with you, you know, I think is a, is a game changer there. You know, if you shoot something and, and runs all the way to the bottom and, you know, you're looking, you're halfway down, your boots are at the top and you're going, okay, do I go after the deer, you know, maybe a follow-up shot, or do I go back up and get my boots and then come back down? So to be able to carry that stuff with you, and then, uh, you know, you have your tag, your camera, your, you know, um, maybe a rain jacket or, you know, like that, your camo face paint, things like that in that um, in that pack, in a snack and water in case, you know, you get hung up on a stock and you're waiting for a deer to stand up, the sun's beating on you and, and you don't have any water with you, that can make for a long set. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty excited about it just because, I mean, we've, we've been, I've been using a, a native is what it's called that, that we offer for that, but this one's a hell of a lot better uh, for this specific use. And even like last year I was talking about, I didn't have something to use. So I was just throwing that life straw in my pocket. Yep. Um, it would have been nice. I caught in a couple, you know, storms. And I mean, there's certain things that don't weigh that much that fit really well. Like you, you talk about the rain jacket, but the Nalgene food, whatever. And I know a lot of guys will bring Ziploc bags for emergency water to, to fill up water in a Ziploc, but that's a little bit of a pain in the butt. Um, you know, yeah, you can purify it. You can drop a pill in there or whatever and keep that. But it, it's easier for me to just keep analgene. I mean, the, the Ziploc thing will work, but that's getting a little too more on the far side of things for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many Ziplocs do you actually get that hold water? No leak. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, no. Zero. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but so hopefully that'll be that'll be released next week um, and get some guys will get them before season it. um we kind of had like an onslaught of orders where we ended up getting about a week behind in shipping at least, but we about got caught up. And then those things, I think we've got a pile of them so we can get them shipped out quick. So, and then, and then South brought me down a bow. So I'm excited. I'm going to go put that thing together today and fling some arrows through, through it. I, um, on your bows, once you list off, uh, um, I mean, I think everybody, anybody that's shooting a stick was fairly familiar, but kind of list off the different stuff you offer just so people stop asking me because I can't remember them all. I only, sure. I only know the ones I like. So. Yeah. <laughs> so probably my most popular one is, well, I mean, it's almost split three ways, but I think I probably build more coyotes um, than than any of the other models. And the coyote is uh, um, typically I build off of the 15-inch riser. I also do offer a shorter one, but it's pretty much just use that for a 54-inch on the uh, on the Coyote model. Um, so I the 15-inch riser will go from 56 to 64-inch in overall length, and that's available with static recurve limbs or longbow limbs that'll interchange from bow handle to bow handle. It'll also um, and that's kind of got a, a pretty well-defined pistol grip, locator-style handle, uh, but those limbs will interchange with the jackal riser, which is a more traditional kind of straight-grip longbow-style riser for the guys that prefer that. Um, 
And then uh, there's the Wolverine, which is the one that I just um, built and, and brought down to you. And that one's a static recurve limb also. It's our fastest bow. Um, and I'm just starting to build longbow limbs for that riser. Uh, the difference on the Wolverine is uh, with those limbs, you have to, to the, the limbs I build will only fit that individual riser. So they're not modular where they'll interchange between risers. Two different riser lengths on that one, 16 and an 18 inch. And typically the 16 inch is 60 inches and below. So 56, 58, 60 inch. And then the uh, 18 inch riser will be a 62 and 64 inch bow, uh, both with uh, longbow or recurve limbs. Um, and then the ILF that I'm doing now, uh, I've got a 17 inch and a 19 inch riser on the ILF. So that'll build from 58 to 66 inch, depending on which riser you go with. So, excuse me, 58 to, 58 to 64 on the 17 and 58 to 66 on the 19. So it's kind of better breakdown there. And I do longbow and recurve limbs for the ILF riser. How's that ILF bow done for you? Because that's what, a year old now? Uh, yeah, about a year... Has it? Yeah. A year and a half, about a year and a half. Yeah. Has yeah. it done as well as you'd hoped or? Well, <laughs> maybe better. Yeah. I hate building those risers, man. There's so many holes to drill and tap on that. And it's so much more labor intensive than any of the other risers. Um, so it's a real pain in the butt from a production standpoint, but it's been really, really well received, better than I than I had thought. And we're actually going to be working on a 15-inch riser this fall. So we'll then offer a 15, 17, and a 19-inch. And I do get a lot of target guys that are asking me, do you build 23? And 19 is going to be the longest I offer. And, and the reason behind that is that um, twofold. One is that um, it's just for some of the exotic wood species, it's just hard to find uh, a piece of wood that's clear, you know, free of defect when you're talking 23 inches. Um, and then also just from a um, environmental standpoint, I'm building them here in um, Colorado, really dry environment. You know, you ship them somewhere else, maybe to a more hot, uh, hot and humid environment, and wood's going to do what wood's going to do. You know, picking up a little bit of moisture, and just the longer you get in a riser, the more chance that you're going to get some twist or deflection in in wood. And despite you know putting an I beam inside the riser to stiffen it up, I just get concerned about having a 23 inch long riser and and uh, ending up with some some shifting in the woods so gotcha cool cool well there you go for guys uh interested in it and it's uh stalkerstickbows.com right yep and uh the um and i'm working on another new bow i'm not really ready to talk about it yet but it'll be out later this fall if all things go as i'm hoping um that's the one i look at yeah oh. yep and maybe I'll have a huntable prototype, you know, for this hunt next week, but I'm still kind of working on limb pad angles and uh, limb geometry and shape and all that. So I'm kind of up against the, the wall there on it. I don't know if I'll get it out in time or not, but. It looked like a pain in the ass to build from yeah. a layman's perspective. It I'm on like fun. the third iteration of limbs and, and uh, so quite a bit of work going into it. Um, one more thing I was just going to mention, I think I'll probably be hiring another guy um, 
this winter. And uh, so, you know, if you have, if somebody out there that has really fine tuned woodworking skills and has aspirations to be a boyer. Me? (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to get you to laugh. Yeah. Um. uh, Frank just looks like he saw a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. But uh, I'm likely going to be hiring somebody. So, you know, PM me or send me an email or something if that's something that uh, person is interested in and eventually uh, i'm gonna be picking up another guy so we're talking uh fine finished carpenter so your your tape measure has to read smaller than one eighth increments right uh yeah <laughs> yeah we were talking about fractions with harold and i'm with harold on that one fractions are not for me oh man uh yeah we could start telling stories about uh construction and uh i'm gonna oh, tell man. one real quick so I'm like, hey, go from the face of the soffit back to the frame. Tell me what you got. Because um, on, on doors, generally you want to put them on, you know, perfectly plumb and level and everything else. But sometimes you go off of reveal because it's a finished building as long as the door swings. And so I measured the bottom out and he's like, uh, four and four sixteenths. <laughs> What'd you say? He's like, four. And, and this guy was full on Dickie Braid, like ghetto fabulous chains and shit. And I'm like... Do you not know how to read a tape measure? And he's like, uh, yeah. And I'm like, give me that fucking thing. <laughs> and it had the 116, 216, right. so it had him listed down, so he would just read the lines uh-huh. or whatever. I was like, do you do you know what a common denominator is? And, I mean, you would have thought, uh, you'd leave, like, deer in the headlights look. And I'm like, so look, you take the largest number that can go into those numbers equally. And I was like, so if it's, let's say, eight, uh, four, right? And and I'm like, and then, so four would be two, and it yeah. just wasn't having it. I was Over like, uh, never mind. Just uh, go ahead and keep telling me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you probably had a few guys like that. Oh, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, fish. He became a truck driver. Probably a better suited job yep. for him. Yeah. Anyway, well, cool, man. We appreciate you coming down. I think we got to go get grab a pack for you right now. And then uh, hopefully we'll, we'll definitely have you one of these packs before mule deer season. I was hoping to have one for you today. We'll have to check, see if they're ready. But, when, uh, uh, before we let you go, when do you think you'll have another uh, film out? Because you just came out with one. It Was it last season? Yeah. So actually, um, Tim's working on editing one, uh, the mule deer one from Nevada. And he told me he'd have um, have it done before I left for this Nevada elk hunt. So oh, next nice. week, conceivably, it could be dropping. And, and uh, yeah, so I'm pretty psyched about that. And and then uh, going to be filming again this fall, too. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I watch your videos more than I should admit because there's just <laughs> not that many. Did you sign um, his copy? He should have. <laughs> uh, I'm not a – I'm not – yeah, it's weird because when I first watched it, I was like, oh, that's cool. I mean, it's a cool mule deer video. And then I shot a stick bow, and then now I'm like, oh, uh-huh. now I get it. Yeah, and now I watch it all the I don't think there's the any out there quite like it, though, there's because not. it's very, uh, I guess you could say, intimate because you get so close. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to do, to, and, and I hope I can say this without like sounding like I'm patting myself on the back, but it's not easy to get it done with the trad bow getting in close and then you add the element of you know, trying to film it at the same time and there's so many more things that can go wrong and I, I think the only reason why I'm able to do it successfully is because I've done it for as long as I have. I kind of have a, a better sense of what I can get away with and what I can't yeah. and then you'll see that a lot of the the uh, hunts are filmed from you know 
two perspectives, a GoPro and then the cameraman filming from across the, you know, the hillside or from a somewhat more distant location, which I'd love to have more over the shoulder stuff, but it gets to be really difficult to try to get two guys in tight. But the, the benefit um, of having somebody remote, you know, a little bit more remote from a distance standpoint is that you can really see the perspective on, you know, how I'm choosing my stalking route coming in on that last little bit. And, and I think from an educational standpoint, um, it's probably more valuable that way than it necessarily is having a guy follow me in over the shoulder all the way. But uh, I just don't think I could get it done as consistently with uh, with a cameraman right over my shoulder as I could with somebody that's, you know, a little bit of a distance away. Yeah, it'd make me punch a baby in the face. I had enough hard time <laughs> last year and then trying to deal with a guy yeah. dragging behind you. I mean, there's certain stocks probably where it just happened to be a, a doable right. gimme, but yep. not very not with not very often with a stick bow. Not I mean, I don't have the experience behind it you do. It's just there's just it very rarely you're like oh look at that mule deer right below that cliff edge with nothing but silent grass above him and the wind's right oh yeah let's go shoot it it just doesn't i waited for that all season last year and it never yeah had and even that one you killed wasn't a gimme i yeah. mean that 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 last that, which was a cool buck but that wasn't it didn't look like the easiest shot in the world even though it was close it was still mm -hmm. kind of a goofy ass angle you had to get right. the arrow off on so yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, that um, you talk about the one I shot at like six yards or yeah. something. Yeah, and uh, you know, I had to use the the roll of the hill to basically hide myself. I'm out six yards. There's not a lot. There's nothing between he and I. And the only thing I could do was kind of like lean way back into the hillside and use the literally the grass in front of me as cover. And I'm looking at it through my left eye over the top of the glass grass, <laughs> and then uh, you know waiting for that. Um, um, that deer to step forward to give me a, a shot in the vitals. So. I was practicing last night. I ran over to American Bowman um, in the cliffs, uh -huh. trying to dig different scenarios, and I whacked the fuck out of my hamstring bad with my bottom limb with a realistic shot scenario. Yeah. It was like your bow's like between your legs or something? Well, it has to be when it's that steep. Oh, with like your down, yeah. Down, and, and there's two ways you can do it, and I was trying to see what I could get away yep. with. Yeah, that's not one of them. Um I just, uh, if you can imagine, like if if you almost have to be where you where you draw the bow, where, you know, you're instead of drawing it straight out to the left, you're almost drawing it forward. Well, I was trying to kind of simulate a couple of shots I had last year where my left leg had to be kind of forward to lean up and over, and I'm trying to keep the bow out. And mother of God, it it hit my like hamstring kneecap behind area bad and i'm like my right, note to self i'm just gonna have to lose some accuracy and shoot this because i was more comfortable with my body that way yeah yeah it's just gonna well it's good to work all those things out because a lot of guys i think they just practice it kind of more of a, a static you know shot that you'd run into on the archery range you know vertical um you know standing upright and the kind of the ideal scenario and and uh that's most of the time not what you're going to run into when you're hunting mule deer. Yeah, Amy laughs because I like reenact like a kid, and I'm like, I've not like I sneak up and face paint or anything, but I mean, I kind of fit, get my yeah. foot like I'm like, all right, the deer's ear, this is the shot I'm going to have, and I'll have her pick like the scenario, like okay, here's the deer here, and then I'm like, okay, uh, I'll give it a whirl, and a lot of times I can't get the full draw depending upon what my right. body position is, so I'll get. Yeah. Figure it out. Frank's laugh. Did you shoot off your deck now? Yeah. 
Shoot off the roof and the deck. Off the roof, damn. The the oh. roof is you want to talk about perfect cliff shots. People. The uh, the roof down. Your neighbors the, must think you're an idiot. The uh, <laughs> the, the old ones were bad, bad. The new ones. Dude's shooting off his roof. He, uh, well, they can't see us. We're in pretty. We've got a call. Yeah. A call. This guy's suicidal. He's going <laughs> to jump off his roof. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they see us shoot, but like, the, I think what's probably not me on the roof that's the weirdest is the fake deer in the front uh -huh. yard is what's getting them. Because that hillside, I put them in those cliffs and rocks. Oh, yeah. And uh, was flinging them off the roof. Because I, I just, uh, I don't get my ass kicked very well. So, like, last year was. Um, I don't know, uh, whatever many days we were back there. And there's, um, most of the shots were not get, well, none, there's no gimme shots, but it was all shots I could definitely get better at. So I'm getting like really working on everything possible because the last thing I want to tell Frank is great stories of 10 days of hunting with no deer in my camp. So, right. um, I mean, we were lucky enough we got one, but like I don't lose very easy when I say lose, like, I go in there this year and I miss a shot that I should hit. I'm, I'm, I'm probably gonna lose my shit. I just I practice too much to let that happen too many times. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm the idiot on the roof practicing like <laughs> retard. Like arrows all over the place. <laughs> Amy laughs though because she keeps me company from the porch. Uh -huh. And uh, I'm like, all right, pick a spot. And she'll be like, okay, that pine cone. And uh, I think it's good. I think everybody. Sh I don't think. Maybe everybody shouldn't shoot off the roof, especially if it's like a twelve twelve pitch. If but you live right. in a condo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't don't be shooting off your apartment, your townhome, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twelve twelve pitch at least give an idea what a forty five degree <laughs> slope is. <laughs> yeah. That's not, dude, when we were in Nebraska, that mountain goat. That mountain goat wasn't even a forty five degree angle on that last shot uh, in Nebraska. I mean the first thing I looked at is like, I wonder what people think this actual yeah. slope is and it was it's steep, but yeah. it was right at forty five. So I shouldn't say it wasn't, but yeah, it's an eye opener for people. So anyway, enough rabbit holes, man. We appreciate you coming down. I know you got to go back to build bows. So sure thing. Keep us posted on uh, how the season goes. We'll do. All right. Thanks again. Yep. Thanks, man.